Psalm 94. Psalm 94. This psalm is about God who protects the righteous. That God is a refuge to the righteous. Now, Psalm 94 is another royal psalm. We saw the first one last week with Psalm 93. It's considered a royal psalm. And since the phrase in verse 2 says the judge of the earth, it's the same as a king. All right, the judge of all the earth is equivalent to a king. The righteous call for the divine judge, that is the righteous call from his people for God, is to punish evil in the world. And I think a lot of us, if not out loud, we say it in our heart, Lord, man, punish the evil in this world. Do something, you know, stop the evil that's going on in this world. Psalm 93 through 99 focuses on the eternal reign of God. And the order of the psalm is as follows. First of all, there's a call for the judge of the earth, which is God, to punish the wicked in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, there's a description of the senseless acts of the wicked in verses 4 through 7. Uh, Third, there's a rebuking of the wicked concerning their ignorance of God in verses 8 through 11. And four, there's a blessing on the righteous in verses 12 through 15. Fifth, there's a prayer for God's intervention in the psalmist's life in verses 16 through 19. And then sixth, there's a prayer for God's defense of his own purposes. That is for God to defend, you know, the things that he's doing, his own purposes in verses 20 through 23. The theme of this psalm is God will keep his people from the harsh punishment that's waiting for the wicked. Because God is holy and fair, we can be sure that the wicked will not succeed. The author is unknown. Psalm 94 calls for God to intervene in righteousness against the wicked. So let's begin with Psalm 94, verse 1. And the psalmist says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance vengeance belongs, shine forth. Now, as I said a minute ago, we hear a lot of people say, man, I wish the Lord would come now. Things are getting so bad and things are getting so evil. He needs to come. And sometimes we call for the Lord to come because we're just flat out tired of this place. We're tired of the things that we go through. We just, you know, we just want this life to be over with, which may not exactly be the right desire for the Lord to come because this Lord put put me out of this misery. I just want to be with you so I don't have to deal with this anymore. Well, you know, do we really want to be with the Lord because he is the Lord? Because of what he's done for us, because he shed his blood on the cross for us. Lord, I want to be with you because it's you. Not, well, just get me out of this mess, Lord. I, I want to come to heaven. But we do hear a lot of people say for various reasons, I wish the Lord would come. Well, he is coming. He's just not on your time schedule. He's on the way. He's right on schedule. You know, the problem is, is that Jesus said himself, no man knows the day or the hour, but he's coming and he'll be here right on time. Like I said, he's not on our time schedule. And when he gets here, he's going to take your business. He's going to take care of all of those things that have caused us to suffer. But in the meantime, he simply says, God simply says to us, take my hand and walk with me by faith. He says, vengeance is mine. 
I will deal with those oppressors of yours. I will deal with those that are persecuting you and causing you problems. I will repay those who have it coming to them. I will take care of things and I will make them right. Now, yeah, there are a lot of things that need to be made right in this world. We have no doubt about it. We can see it all around us. And when he comes to earth again in power and all of his glory, he's going to make things right. But until then, we need to be patient. We're not to run ahead of God. We're not to take things into our own hands. We're to keep our eyes on the Lord, keep our eyes on Jesus, and we're to cast all of our cares upon him. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and leave everything else to him. You see, the psalmist didn't have any confidence in any of the rulers in his day who should have been the avengers of all the poor. They should have been taking care of the needs of the poor. They should have been taking care of those who were oppressing them, who wronged them and distressed them. He had confidence in God who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, man can't avenge himself for various reasons. First of all, because those who do him wrong are pretty much beyond his reach or control. Secondly, because man doesn't have the necessary forces to call on, okay, to avenge himself. Third, because he doesn't have, because he himself isn't under control enough to mix justice with mercy. You know, when we want to take out vengeance, man, we want to go all the way. We don't want to lighten up. We don't want to have any mercy. We just want to do away with that person. So again, we don't have the right justice and mercy mixed together to uh, measure, out, measure out the right justice to that, to that person that we want to avenge ourselves to. Fourthly, because we can't be perfectly sensible. We don't have the wisdom. But that person is sure to spoil his revenge Notice, by letting his personal feelings get in the way. And fifth, because he's in serious danger of injuring himself in his revenge. Secondly, man can, but, and here's the, here's the good part, man can rest, can rest and let God avenge him. Because you see, God's power is sufficient. Secondly, God's self-restraints are perfect. God does not allow his emotions to get involved when he avenges man. Third, God's timing is best. And fourth, God's revenge proves to be blessings both for the person that is wronged and for the wrongdoer. Verse 2. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Now, the older scriptures always present God as the true and living judge. The one that justifies the oppressed and he punishes the wrongdoer. Now, some people think that there's going to be one special day way off in the future when God is going to judge everything. And all of the earth's problems are going to be straightened out at that particular time. And all of the problems of the earth are going to be made right at that particular time. But this isn't what the Old Testament saints had in mind. See, this idea of there's going to be a particular day when God's going to take care of all that's wrong uh, could come from the New Testament picture from the judgment seat of Christ. When we're told that at the judgment seat of Christ, we are going to re reward, be rewarded for our, you know, the, the things that we did in Christ's name and for Christ and the things that we didn't do for Christ. All right. But this has mistakenly limited the, the Christian to the idea that God 
is not present all the time. That he's going to come one day at a specific time and he's going to make everything right. And that God isn't judging all the time. You know, as if he wasn't around all the time. So the idea of a present and continuous judging God is what, need, is what we need to understand more clearly. It's something that has to be set in the Christian mind because God is judging all the time. It's not, he's not waiting for one particular day when he's going to make all things right. But the Israelite thought of a judging body of officials as the most important continuous function of the king, which every faithful king would practice every day. Remember, as you read in the Old Testament, they would sit at the gate and they would hear and decide all of the cases that the people would present to them. So they were coming into constant, a constant judicial relationship to the life of the people. So believing in a, in a still future judgment where all things will be judged shouldn't cause us to lose the idea that God right now rules. And that God right this moment is involved in punishments and rewards. So God the judge is currently, right now, determining difficult cases. Just like the kings would do sitting at the city gate. God is constantly, constantly, again, determining the different situations in life. Now, we can all admit that, that a lot of the times in our lives... We get confused. There's confusion in our life. You know, we don't know what to think during those times. We, we don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. So we're in danger of being carried away simply by what's appealing. You know, at those times that we're confused, we don't know where to go, what to do, what to think. Some, something that may look right, something that may look like this is a good thing to do may draw us away. But it might be the very wrong thing to do. But if we'll only wait, God will surely decide for us and he will make the right choice for us without a doubt. Secondly, God is recognizing and rewarding the righteous. We never have any doubt of this until we become impatient. You see, we we want the recognition at once. Lord, you know, I've been faithful. I've been doing this. I want doing that. And, you know, and God has promised to reward us. But we shouldn't do it because of the reward. But you know what? Sometimes, like I said, when we get impatient. Lord, why, why aren't I being recognized for what I'm doing? Well, you know, he is recognizing and he is rewarding the righteous. But again, it's when we become impatient that we begin to doubt that God is even around. Because, again, we want the recognition now. And because the judge is also the sanctifier, that is the one who sets us aside, sets us apart. God might delay that reward when he decides it's due. But you know what? God is wise enough to notice everything that's good. There is nothing that we do for the Lord in his name for the right purpose that is forgotten by God. Not one drop of sweat, not one ounce of blood, not twinge of pain done in the Lord's name is forgotten by God. He knows, he sees, he knows everything that we do. The psalmist said in Psalm 31, 14 through 15, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. And here's the thing, my times are in your hand. Remember that. My times are in your hand, the psalmist said. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. God, the judge, 
punishes the wicked. We don't ever have to worry about that. We don't ever have to worry about being deceived by what looks like the prosperity of the wicked, kind of like what Asaph fell into in Psalm 33. You know, he got all bummed out one day, and as he was looking at the prosperity of the wicked, he seems, he said they seem to be having a wonderful life, not having any pain, they're never sick, they seem to be just prospering. He says, and here I am, Lord, I'm walking with you, I'm serving you. He says, I feel like I've washed my hands for nothing. Like I'm walking with you, I'm serving you for nothing. He got caught up in that until it says he went into the sanctuary and he sat before the Lord and he saw their end. You see, that prosperity here on earth may be all the prosperity they ever experienced. And then they will spend eternity in hell. But you see, we may be persecuted and suffer all our time here on earth, but then spend all our eternity in glory with God in heaven. So we really have to look at things the way they truly are. So again, God does punish the wicked. So we don't have to worry about being deceived by, you know, the prosperity of the wicked. It's part of their judgment. You see, it's making them right in preparation for their fall. Look at verse 3 now. And the psalmist says, "How, Lord, how long will the, will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? That, that famous phrase, how long? In one verse, twice, how long, Lord? How long are the wicked going to prosper? How, how long are they going to go on seeming like everything is, is going good for them? Men ask this question only when they can't see the end of some things. Because, you know, we know that the wicked prosper, but then we, we, we want to see a time limit. Lord, how long are you going to let them go on like this? The martyred souls in Revelation 6.10. Remember, they were crying from under the altar. They were asking God, Lord, how long until you judge the avenge, uh, judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Lord, what are you going to do, do, do those in who, who took our lives? The ungodly are limited, though, in what they can do. And we need to remember that. They don't have free reign, though we, we may think they do or it may look like they have free reign. God will not allow his name to be dishonored or, he, or have his work hindered king nebuchadnezzar found out the hard way that he was limited to what he could do when he started to boast against god and say oh look at this city look at all that i've done i've done this this is my city me me my my i i it was all about nebuchadnezzar and he gave no glory to god king herod reached this limit and he reaches it when he doesn't stop the people from praising him the people were shouting, oh, it's the God, it's, it's the voice of God and not of a man. And instead of King Herod said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, I'm just the king, I'm just a man. He soaked it all up. He loved it, like a lot of people do. And because God is and has to be supreme, every man is under limitations. They, they, they all, you know, they, they only have so far that they can go. And those limitations of the ungodly are set for the safety of God's people. First Peter 3.13, Peter said, and who is he? I like this. Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And we see this with Satan, the one who deceives and persecutes God's people. He's bound, it says, for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. He's always bound. 
He's bound this moment to a certain degree. In the book of Job, he could only go as far as God would let him go in persecuting Job and causing him to suffer. Satan could not touch Job or anything that Job had without God giving the okay. And it's the same thing with you and me. Satan has limitations to what he can do to you and me. Even the cruelty during times of persecution and the obvious wickedness of the Inquisition, they were within God's limitations. Also, the limits of the ungodly are set in the interest of the ungodly themselves. Think about it. Those living before the flood lived for a thousand years before God brought judgment, the horrible judgment upon their wicked lives. Think of this. What would those proud, vicious men be like now if they didn't have God's limitations? You see, God's mercy puts limits on the wicked. Look at verses 4 through 7 now. They utter speech and they speak insolent things. He's talking about the wicked. All the workers of iniquity, they boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. What seems to really, really be bothering the psalmist is that these arrogant, wicked men, they're bragging with such joy and excitement. Hey, God doesn't see what we're doing. And as a result, they oppress the weak. And the psalmist says here, especially the widow in verse 6, and especially the stranger, and especially the fatherless. And in each case, these are people who don't have a lot of ways to, to help themselves, to defend themselves. Now, the widow, she doesn't have a husband to take care of her or to provide for her. The stranger who, or the foreigner, they have limited rights in a foreign country under foreign laws. And the fatherless, that is the orphan, they have no father at all to protect them. They're all weak. And because they're weak, they become prey of the wicked, the arrogant. And the arrogant weren't even ashamed of what they were doing to these people, to these defenseless people. But it was the very opposite, you see. They were proud of being able to do it. Instead of being, you know, concerned and caring and, and, and having any feelings for these, the, 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 the orphan and the, and the widow and the, and the stranger, they were very proud of what they were doing. That they could do it. They were also sure that God didn't even see their wicked behavior. They say, hey, God's not, God can't see. He's not watching. You see, they stole and got away with it. That's why they thought God didn't see them. And it's the same today. You know, people live wicked lives. They do wicked things and nothing happens to them, you know, right away. And they think either God doesn't care or he doesn't see or there is no God. Here in verse 7, the wicked said, notice, the Lord does not see. And it may seem to be true sometimes that the Lord doesn't see, that he isn't looking, at least for now. And this is what the psalm is dealing with when it asks God to step in and to do something. Lord, take vengeance on the wicked, those who are oppressing your people. Verses 8 through 11. Understand you senseless among the people and you fools. When when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of men that they are futile. The psalmist here 
is saying, be forewarned, you senseless people. Meaning fools. Be forewarned. You who think like this, that God doesn't see you, that God doesn't hear you, that he doesn't see what you do, he doesn't hear what you think, and, and you think you're getting away with it, be warned. You know, he says, how can someone be so foolish as to think that God, notice the one who made your ears, can't hear. And the one who made your eyes can't see. And he who punishes the nations, won't he also punish you? God knows everything. He's saying, don't you think he knows exactly what you're doing? But again, this is what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 8.11. This is the reason why wicked do what they do and think that nothing's going to happen. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily because God doesn't judge a person right away. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Because God does not bring judgment upon the wicked right away. They think, you know what? It just causes them to do evil. They're fully set on it. When a crime is not punished right away, people think it's okay to do wrong. It's okay to continue the, in the life that they're, they're, they're living. That God doesn't see or that he doesn't care. That's a terrible mistake. A terrible mistake. And I know we're all familiar with Psalm 139, 1 through 7. Makes it very clear that God knows what you do. The psalmist said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? No, there are other scriptures that said, you know, that that the world cannot contain God. God is bigger than the universe. Wherever you go, he's there. And then after asking those rhetorical questions, that is that they were just asked for the, for effect in verses nine and ten, the psalmist then comes to the conclusion here in verse 11. He says, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile, that is, they're worthless. Your natural wisdom is inadequate to direct your own steps. Many people think, hey, I, hey, I, know, I know, what, you know what I need to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm leading my own life. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I know what direction I'm going in. And yet God says the thoughts of man, they're futile. They're worthless. And our natural wisdom isn't good enough to direct our own steps. And that's why Jeremiah 10, 23 says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. Is it not in man who walks to direct his own steps? Notice. Jeremiah said, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. That's why we need a shepherd. A person's life is not his own. No one is able to plan his own way in life. Again, that's why we need a shepherd to lead us, to guide us. You see, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows all things. And he has to be omniscient if he's God. So you see, if anybody thinks that, that they are getting away with something just because God hasn't brought judgment down upon them right away, The psalmist said, you're thinking like a senseless brute. An animal. 
He says, oh, oh, you're thinking like a fool that doesn't that 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 God doesn't see or hear or know about it. God knows our thoughts. He knows the thoughts of men. He knows what we think. Psalm 139, 17 says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. God knows exactly what's going on in my head. (laughs) And he must shake his head. You know, it's foolishness, foolishness to God. Not only does God know our thoughts, but he knows they're futile. The psalmist here is not speaking out. The psalmist is talking about, you know, we shouldn't think, we shouldn't use our mind. God gave us the brain to be used. So the psalmist isn't speaking out against human thought and using our mind itself. It's a comment on the foolishness of assuming and taking it for granted that God doesn't see or care what you do. It's the foolishness of acting and living as if there was no God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.20, the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. Verses 12 through 15. Blessed or happy is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment will return to righteousness and all the upright in heart will follow it. Until God deals with the workers of iniquity, what are the righteous to think in the meantime? Well, the psalmist has described what the arrogant have done wrong and he's asking God to avenge. He's warned the arrogant. But what about those who are oppressed? What about the righteous? In verses 12 through 15, the psalmist speaks to these people and he assures them that the wickedness that they endure are for their discipline in the school of faith and that the righteous judgment of oppressors will surely come in the end by God. God will righteously judge the oppressors in the end. Verse 12 here speaks of discipline, but not punishment for sin. What it is he's speaking about, it's the discipline of a hard life that causes us to turn to God to learn more about him. Which is why the psalm connects discipline with being taught from God's word. And in these verses, God promises in verse 13a, rest from the days of adversity. The upright in heart do have problems. The righteous do have problems. We're not immune to problems. We're not immune to suffering. But you know what? They're never totally without limits or without relief. In other words, when you go through the furnace of affliction, always picture in your mind, God's hand is on the thermostat. And he knows when to crank down the heat and he knows when to turn it up. And he knows exactly how much you can take. He knows when to turn it up and he knows when to turn it down. And God gives us relief from trouble in his time. In his time. And God is always with his people when they call on him. When they're, and when they're called on to go through the furnace of affliction. God is always with us. He doesn't call us uh, to go through any affliction and then abandon us. And then the, in the second part of verse 13, it says the wicked will be punished. He, prom- he promises the upright that, that he's digging a pit for the wicked to fall into. And you know, it's just a matter before they do. Third, verse 14 says that God is faithful. 
It says God will not cast off, that, w- that is, he will not reject his people or forsake his inheritance. And fourth, in verse 15, the righteous will win out in the end. We just have to wait it out. Here's the promise that judgment will come again for the righteous. The righteous kingdom of Jesus will come and it will be set up. Now, where do we learn these things? Where, we do, where do the righteous learn about these things that the psalmist is talking about? Where do they find these valuable promises? In the word of God. In the Bible. Verse 12 here, notice it says, Blessed is the man, the word blessed means happy, blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach, where? Out of your law. You see, the righteous are kept going through all of life's troubles by reading the scriptures. Where do you go when life gets tough? When it seems to get so hard and when you're called to go through something that's so hard for Jesus. See, God will provide comforts for you through the scriptures if you read them and apply them. God wants very much, God wants very much to have men and women who would live in pain Listen clearly what I'm saying. Because I heard people over and over say, you know, God wants me to be happy. He doesn't want me to be miserable. He doesn't want me to suffer. He doesn't. Well, where in the scriptures do you find that? That's not his intent, but it's a part of life sometimes. And God wants us to have men and women. God wants to have men and women who live in pain. Not because God's a masochist or or he, he loves to see you hurting. No. But where are we going to prove the testimony of God's goodness and and his word if it's not through the difficult? It's easy to serve God and to honor God and glory God when everything is wonderful. But you see, God wants a broken vessel. I read the book and I can't remember what it was, but I, I wrote this down. God has a university. It's a small school. And not very many sign up for it. And even fewer graduate. And God has this school because he doesn't have broken men and women. Instead, he has several other types of people. He has, ty- he has people who claim to have God's authority, but they don't. He has people who claim to be broken, but they're not. And he has people who do have God's authority, but who are mad and not broken. And he has disappointedly a great mixture of everything in between. And all, of these ha- and, and all of these he has in abundance, but broken women, hardly at all. In God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students? Because all students in this school must suffer a lot of pain. And as you might guess, it's often the, bro- it's often the unbroken ruler that God sovereignly picks who, does, who doles out the pain. For example, David was once a student in this school and Saul was God's chosen way to crush David. Sidney Smith said this, evil is to be endured. He said, don't ever forget that the fifth and greatest gospel is the life of Christ. That he acted, that is, he lived for us as well as taught that in the, de- in the deserts of Judea, in the hall of Pilate, on the cross, his patience, his patience shows us that evil is to be endured. Jesus endured all kinds of evil. 
And his prayers point out to us how alone it, that is the prayers, can, be, uh, can alleviate the suffering. The prayers can lessen the suffering. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.19, the solid foundation of God stands. For any building, the foundation is critical. And it has to be deep enough and solid enough to withstand the weight of the building and other stresses. And our lives are like buildings. And the quality of each one's foundation will determine the quality of the whole. And too many times, inferior materials are used. And when tests come, lives crumble. Job was tested. He was filled with prestige. He was filled with possessions and people. And then he was suddenly assaulted. He was attacked on every side. He was devastated. He was stripped down to his foundation. But you see, his life was built on God. And Job endured. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 13, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. When the trials come, it will show you the type of foundation that you built upon. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, and 11, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our body. There's the bottom line. You see, people, people need to see the manifestation of Christ in us through the storms. Jesus described the two types of lives built on two different foundations in Luke chapter 6, 47 through 49 in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he said. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings, his word, and does them, he says, I will show you one whom he, I will show, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house, notice, who dug deep, dug deep. That speaks of labor. That speaks of, of work digging deep to set the foundation and i can relay that to digging deep in your relationship with christ walking faithfully with him reading the word studying the word time and prayer building that foundation he said he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock and when the floods arose and the streams beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it because it was founded on the rock. You see those, the, those winds and those storms that beat against it, those are the trials of life. Those are the, the afflictions and the sufferings of life that come and they beat against this house, this, this temple of the Holy Spirit. And then when it comes, if it's built on that foundation that is dug deep in Christ, it will stand those trials. It will make it through those afflictions. Then Jesus went on to describe that second foundation. But he who heard and did nothing, that is, he who heard what he said, but didn't do anything about it, he's like a man who built his house on the earth or sand without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. Notice, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. See, it changes everything. When we build our foundation in Jesus Christ. Everything. 
And it changes everything when we see our trouble is God's divine discipline. When God is teaching us something. You know, we can submit to it. And you know what? When we do, we'll accept it. And we'll ride it through. But if we kick against the goat, goats and we, we fight and we scream against the will of God, hey, it's, it's, it's going to be very difficult to deal with. Whether it comes from, whether that, 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 again, discipline or that however it's done, whatever instrument God uses, whether it comes from the form of, of human oppression or corrupt judges or the plan of those who take pleasure in being hostile to, to the righteous and our trouble is hard to bear, everything in us rises up to resist it. That is, if we don't submit to it. But have a great faith in God and feel sure of His total sovereignty and understand that He works for the highest moral end and He uses even the self-will and the wrongdoing of others as instruments to accomplish His loving purposes in our life. And then your heart will surrender to these evils in a quiet and holy submission and out of enduring them, you will sing the songs of hope like Paul and Silas did when they were in the prison. And they sang song, songs of hope. And you see, get, remember what it says? All, of, all the prisoners were listening. See, that's the school of brokenness. That's the place God wants us to get to. Where we can sing when we're in those prisons, whatever they might be. That others might see, hey, there is something definitely different about that person. And that difference should be Jesus Christ. Verses 16 through 19. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help. Notice, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would have soon settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties or doubts within me, your comforts delight my soul. So after the psalmist assures the upright about the things God will do for them, he gives them a little personal testimony as if to say, you know what, I've, you know what I've been telling you? God will do for you. What I've been telling you, God will do for you. I know because he did it for me. The psalmist said, if the Lord hadn't helped me, man, I would have died. He said, I cried out, Lord, I'm slipping, I'm slipping. And, and, and your unfailing love, Lord, it supported me. And when doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and joy. So if and when you feel abandoned, know that God will do exactly the same for you as he did for the psalmist here. And for many others, even before the psalmist. Let's close with verse 20 through 23 now. So shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you. They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the, and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord, our God, shall cut them off. So what are the righteous to do? While waiting for God to do something about the evil that's around us and the evil in the world, keep your eyes on the Lord. Live by faith, not by sight. That's what the psalmist did here. And he did it by saying in verse 22, the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. 
That's where I go, the psalmist said. I go to the Lord. I go to the rock of my refuge. He's been my defense. And then he, finished this, he finishes the psalm by saying with confidence that God has heard and God will judge the wicked. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you for this beautiful psalm, God, this psalm of encouragement. And Father, we pray that, God, we would take something home from this psalm, Lord. The Father, we would keep our eyes on you, that we would look unto Jesus as the, uh, as the finisher, the author and the finisher of our faith, God. Lord, the one who has everything that I need, God, and help me, Lord, to let everything uh, go, that is, everything that I want to take into my own hands and let the Lord Jesus handle it for me, God. Help me to be patient, Lord. Help me to wait on him, and in his time, he will deal with those things, that, Father, that trouble me. God, help me to turn them over to you, Lord. And Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters here tonight, God, and whatever they're going through, God, I pray, God, that your spirit has ministered to them and has touched them, Lord. And that, Father, we have grown a little bit more and become a little bit more like Jesus, God. Strengthen us, God. Help us to submit to the things that, that you allow in our lives, God. And help us to remember that Satan has limitations on what he can do. In, in my life or, or to me, Father. And Father, you have him on a short leash, God. And that, Lord, you have set your, your eyes upon me because I am your love. And so, Lord, we thank you for your love, your grace. We thank you for your word, God. And Father, may we be instructed, as the psalmist said, by your word, Lord. May we read it. May we love it. May we dig into it, Lord. May our foundation go deep into the roots of Jesus Christ, Lord. So when those winds blow and those, and those rains come, God, and they beat upon this house, God, that we will endure. And the Father, we will come out strong. And Father, even stronger than before. So Father, we thank you. We praise you. We give you honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It looks like everybody is familiar here, and that's why I did not do an altar call. But if I'm mistaken and you want to know about more Christ and, and, and receive him, Come on and, and we'll pray and, and we'll make that happen.